0: great so i'll be preaching to you as well today so that's new pray with me would you father i kid about the preaching of your word about what we're able to receive what i'm able to preach to but i confess as i step into the pulpit that i need your mercy and as we come before your word We need your mercy to receive it. Father, would you give us the grace to hear your word? Would you allow us to apply it to our lives? Would you give us all that we need based on the work of Jesus to sanctify us, to save us, to conform us to the image of your son? Let it be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter one we will be in verses one through five today. And as you do that, let's reflect and meditate upon that peculiar story that we just read. If you can do two things at one time from Genesis chapter 15, that peculiar story about God's covenant with Abram. Now, it is true. That that story is peculiar to a modern audience. But in that story, we see God giving a covenant to Abraham. And that's not so strange. But what comes next is God tells Abraham to bring him some livestock. And so Abraham does to bring him some birds. And so Abraham does or Abram does at this point. And God tells him to cut them in half and to lay the carcasses open on each side of a pathway now that sounds strange to us you can picture that would be a very unusual situation there would be blood scattered all over the pathway that's unusual to us but to Abraham that actually would not have been so unusual for this was actually a a way of, of making a treaty in Abraham's day this is something that he would have understood from his context And it goes something like this. A king would come to somebody who needed the king's protection. And he would offer him protection. He would offer him life. The king would, that is, in exchange for this uh, faithful person's willingness to follow them and to obey them unto death. And that's what the carcasses represent. The agreement would go like this. The king will protect... The person who is laying the carcasses out and then they will walk between them. And the suggestion is that if I do not remain faithful to the king, may I be cut in half? May I be undone as these carcasses that lay before me? That would not have been unusual. Abraham would have understood exactly what was happening in that moment, that God is making a promise to him and that Abraham is to remain faithful to God. But what did come next was probably surprised Abraham because it's not Abraham who passes between the carcasses. It's not Abraham who puts his life on the line should his people be unfaithful to this God. It's God who passes between the carcasses. It's God who makes the statement that I will protect you, Abraham. I will keep you. And if you fail to uphold the covenant, it is I who will have my body Broken for you. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. And so, God, in doing this, makes himself the decisive hero of the story. And as we continue to unfold scripture, we see God continue to act this way throughout. He continues to promise his people good things to deliver them from bondage and to fight for his people over and over again. God's favor is truly shown to be upon his people. It's the most repetitive message throughout the Bible that God fights for his people. God continues to fight for them. And it culminates, of course, in what it's all pointing to, the point at which is forecasted in Genesis chapter 15 that when God's people are unfaithful to God, it is not them who die, but it is God who sends his son Jesus to die in their place, making God the decisive hero of the story, making Jesus the one who rescues us and the one who is worthy of all worship and praise and honor. So why does God repeat this theme over and over again in scripture? Why does God tell us this All the time. Well, here's an important interpretive principle for you. If you see something repeated over and over again, it's generally a good idea to remember that thing. And it's generally repeated over and over again because we often forget that very thing. And that's what God is trying to tell us. That we often forget that God... Always rescues his people. We're so quick to forget that God is the hero of the story. Start to finish. We want to put ourselves into the story. We want to be David who fights Goliath. But we are not the hero of the story. We are not the one who passes between the carcasses. We try to become the ones who rescue ourselves. We do it constantly, but God repeats this theme constantly because we're so quick to retreat and to forget the grace of God in our rescue. And that's precisely the context that we find the letter of Galatians written in. The churches of Galatia have retreated from grace. They've warped God's rescue in the gospel into some sort of partnership in which they're doing some of the work. And Galatians is written as a call back to the rescue that God has given them in the first place. Paul calls the churches of Galatia back to grace. He beckons them back to grace. Now, grace is an interesting word. Perhaps you can define it. The simple church definition that I grew up with is unmerited favor. That's a good definition. It's precise. It's God's favor given to us when we do not deserve it. But our fallen condition causes us to retreat from grace constantly, just as the Galatian churches did. In, in their case, they're taking the gospel that's rooted in God's grace and they're adding law to it. But if we add anything to that grace, which we just defined, then it ceases to be grace any longer because we're now somehow meriting it where it was unmerited favor. It's now favor that we're trying to gain by Merit, And Paul calls us back to that grace and he does it brilliantly in his opening. Even the way that he opens this letter reminds us that we're constrained to grace, as we just sang, uh, even more than we recognize most of the time. Look at that very first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. Now what is Paul doing here? Is he stroking his own ego? Is he, is he trying to come off as superior, as an apostle? No, not at all. The reality is that he's pressing into the consequences of sin, namely that we have no intellectual right to the knowledge of God. That right to know God is such an assumption on our part. But we assume our favor in such a way that we assume we should be able to come to God. We're so assumptive of what we deserve that it extends out in every direction in our lives. Have you had this experience even when you walk into the DMV and you see that there's a line and you immediately become angry because you assume that you're entitled to be at the front of that line? That's the sort of assumption that we come in with. And you know what the worst part of that is? Is that everybody in that line... Assumes the same thing. They think it's all about them for some reason. But the truth is that we have no right to it. And that's what Paul is unveiling here that grace is essential. Paul, in even reaching out to this church, is declaring God's grace to them, to call them back to grace. We are so constrained to the grace of God, and we should not so easily forget it, but we do. Grace is what reveals God to us, and it is grace that Paul comes and calls the churches of Galatia back to with grace itself. And we, like them, are forgetful, and we turn away from God's grace. But we are being called back to the grace of God that is foundational to everything in our life. So the purpose of this sermon is very simple. It's to call you back to God's grace so that you may rest in God's favor as it is set on the cornerstone of Christ's work alone. Because that is the only good news so that God will receive glory alone. And my hope is that we would be edified and sanctified to receive God's grace anew this morning and that we would become defenders of God's grace In our hearts and by God's grace, that we would be commissioned to search out any stronghold of resistance to that grace in our lives so that Christ may be held up as the most precious and central object of our worship so that God alone may be glorified. Well, to do that, let's look at three reasons why God's grace is essential In our lives. Uh, Number one, God's grace is essential to bring you peace. God's grace is essential to bring you peace. Now, peace is not brought without uh, without God's grace through Jesus and through his work. If either of those elements are missing, peace from and with God is forfeit. Paul cuts the chase with this right away. Starting in verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. Does anyone remember algebra? Do you have fond memories of algebra class. Everybody loved algebra, I know. Well, Paul creates an algebraic expression for us here. Do you remember x plus y equals z? Remember those fond memories? Well, the good news of of this particular verse is that paul goes on ahead and he fills in all the variables for us and he tells us exactly what the x the y and the z are he begins with what the equation equals he tells us that it's all about peace from god now hannah loves to drive around at christmas and look at christmas lights we've done that for years and and one sign that we see often in people's yards is peace on earth why do we see that sign well, it's because peace is central uh, to the gospel. It's the central problem that the gospel is given to address. So when we need to understand what peace is, we need to understand what peace is. And peace is only defined by the absence of some form of conflict. As long as conflict exists, there is no peace, in other words. Now, maybe you think this morning that, that you're not in conflict with God, so you don't know what Paul is talking about when he refers to peace. And that things are good between you and God. Well, Scripture is clear that without Christ, you and I are enemies Of God, whether we believe it or not, it's kind of like Frodo in Lord of the Rings. He and his people do not understand the conflict that's all around them. They're not even aware of it. They're oblivious to it and they're happy. But that won't protect them. What does Frodo learn? Well, when he leaves the Shire, he learns that if he fails to complete his mission, if he fails to destroy the one ring, the Shire will be destroyed along with his people, whether or not they're aware of the mounting evil. So if you believe that you are okay with God this morning, that makes little difference. Scripture tells you something else, that you and I are enemies of God because we have violated God's perfect law. See, God as creator has expressed commands for his creation to obey. But his creation has disobeyed those commands. That's called sin. And that's very logical, isn't it? You, you would not expect the creator of anything to put his stamp of approval on something that he makes that fails to do what it's supposed to do, would you? So why do we assume that we're right with God? So disobedience to this God then puts us at odds with him. It makes us enemies and we stand incongruent. And unequal to his perfect law. And it's not just the big sins, quote unquote, that do this. God's word says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become guilty of all. So have you kept all of God's law? Have you murdered? Have you stolen? Have you been jealous? Have you hated? Have you loved something more than God? If so, if yes is your answer to any of those, then you are guilty of all. And God's justice is not vindicated and his integrity is compromised so long as peace is not given. So peace is necessary and must be obtained by a perfect God. Peace is a return to balance of the scales. It's bringing justice to bear. Outside of that, there is no peace one of the essential components of who God is is a sense of justice and a need to bring about peace for injustice. Proverbs 11.1 one says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God must have congruency in his perfection, or he is not God. The classic example that we go to is that a just and good judge must act in accordance with the law or he forfeits his goodness. He forfeits justice. But I feel like that's almost too autonomous in some ways. It's more like with God, a ball that must fall because you've dropped it or an apple tree that must produce apples and not peaches. It's like a banana that must turn brown because it was picked. See, the justice of God must occur. It cannot be overlooked. For God to be God, he must deal justly with conflict or he is not righteous to his own law. So for him to be God, he must bring the equation into balance with peace. So what's on the left side of the equation then becomes very important because it must equal peace. From God and offset all that I have just said. Well, then what are the X and Y's in Paul's equation? That's what we need to understand. Well, Paul says grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. See, for peace to occur, that sin must be paid for. And the righteous must of God dictates that someone must be given for that sin. The unfaithfulness must be met with a broken body, just as those animal carcasses were broken. So what can bring balance is death, namely your death for your sin. The just balance of treachery against God's design is that death. But grace intervenes in this moment. When it was you who should have passed through the carcasses, Paul says that Jesus did it and so he accomplishes the debt of life that must be paid jesus is the x factor in the equation of god's peace the peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ who gave himself for our sins and that is grace to you see jesus is the only one who can give himself for you because he is the perfect substitute for man's failure He was a man who was tempted with sin just as you and I are, yet he was God and he was without sin. And then he was put to death for sin. He was innocent, yet he died and his death is traded for all those who would believe in his perfect sacrifice. That's the gospel. God's grace is essential to bring you peace. But number two, God's grace is essential to keep you at peace. See, sometimes we make an assumption that God's grace in Jesus is just a hard reset in our lives. As if we had scraped our knee while we were running the race of life and Jesus comes along to pick us up and to set us back on the path so that we can continue running the rest of the way. Or, or like when the video game isn't going your way and that reset button becomes so compelling. I don't know if that's still A thing I've been out of the video game world for a while. It worked on Duck Hunt. Do you remember that? That dog would laugh at me and I would reset him. Took care of it. Some of you know what I mean. I'm not carrying a scar. But God's grace in Jesus is essential to carry us throughout life. Not just to save us initially, but to carry us throughout life. Look back at the text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says that the grace of God has been displayed in Christ's death to deliver us from the present evil age, to deliver all those who would trust in him. Well, let's take a poll this morning, can we? How many of you who have trusted in the gracious gift of Jesus' work who are here today were taken to heaven the moment that you were saved? I can't see downstairs. I assume that nobody's raising their hands. But yet, Paul says that God's grace is on us and it grants us peace to deliver us from the present evil age. Well, if we're not physically removed from the present evil age, then this must mean that either this is a lie or that the grace of God is given in the person and work of Christ to deliver you in another sense. That is, not to physically remove you, but to hold you through your life in this world, to guard you and to keep you. Well, I don't think it's a lie. I think the second part is true. That means that you are less like Rambo in your life. You're less like the person who's hunkering down and holding out, setting up traps to try to protect yourself. That you're totally on edge all the time trying to keep yourself in Christ trying desperately to hold on to what you have with God, that peace that was bought in the beginning. And you're more like Dory from Finding Nemo, who just keeps swimming. Just keep trusting. Just keep trusting. Because Jesus bought it, and now it's kept for you by God's grace. Church, when you receive that grace from God, that does not give you license to now become a law keeper. You cling to that grace every day. That which was bought by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus does not suddenly transform into a law-based system. The gospel is relevant to your life start to finish. You need Jesus daily. We know that, don't we? But we wouldn't have trusted in the gospel to begin with if we didn't know that. I went kayaking with Deal the other day. I'd never been before. It's really kind of you to take me. Thank you. But before I went, I intellectually knew how paddling worked. I knew that if I pulled hard to the right side, it would turn me which way? Now that I'm up here, I don't know. It used to be clear, and that's the point. Something happened when I got on the water. Something happened to my brain, and I just couldn't quite figure it out. I think I would have ended up in Spain if Deal hadn't kindly come over and given me the direction that I already thought I knew. It saved me. And I'm so quick to think that I already know. It might be one of my catchphrases. I know. I already know. But I need the reminder so often. Church, you already know that it was Jesus who paid for your sin by grace and that your law keeping could not bring you peace from God the father. But the reminder is good because when you get out on the water again, your brain, if it's like mine shuts down and you start paddling in circles. That's precisely the context in which Paul is writing. These people who have received the gospel openly Now they are trying to squeeze circumcision into the mix. They're trying to add the law that that addition would honor God somehow and it would make them the gospel more sure in their lives. Now, fellas, I don't know how off your brain needs to be to bring circumcision back into the equation. I'm not jumping at that one. But Paul comes in with the reminder, with the call back to grace. Because we do the same thing in our own context, We're so quick to receive the gospel of Jesus, but then we want to add things to make ourselves pleasing to God as if we can create some sort of gospel plus some kind of Christianity. Plus, we take the gospel work of Jesus and we add the work of church attendance to it. We add the work of righteousness that is more than the person next to me, as if I can compare myself. To others, I look better than they do. I look holier than they do. We take the gospel work of Jesus and we add having all the right answers. Make no mistake. That Christianity plus that we create, it does not enhance the gospel, it undermines it. We do not become less dependent on the gospel as we grow. We see all the more how gracious God is as we grow our sin becomes more apparent as we grow. And rather than straining hard to fix it, we turn back to him and his grace because Christ was given by grace to deliver us from the present evil age. That's astounding news, church, as we walk in a world that undoubtedly will pull you tomorrow in all sorts of directions. But it's ultimately not up to you to hold your ground. The gospel makes it Sure. Start to finish. God's grace is essential to keep you at peace. And finally, third, God's grace is essential to glorify God through your peace. God's grace is essential to glorify God through your peace. Your peace with God that is given by the work of Jesus is secured because of Jesus. See, God is glorified in the work of Jesus as it is applied to you by faith. And because it is of God's glory, it will not be moved as long as God is controlling it. See, we've established that God's gracious rescue of his people is a theme throughout Scripture. But another significant theme that we should be aware of in Scripture is God's passionate pursuit of his own glory. Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another. In Malachi, he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote a treatise on this called The End for Which the World Was Created. In it, he suggests that God's creation of the world is rooted in him receiving glory. That's why he does it. Now, maybe that strikes you the wrong way. Maybe that sounds just a tad self-centered and selfish, and it is, to be sure, if you did it, because the world does not center around you and because you are not its creator and because God is a being for which none better can be conceived, as Anselm taught. In short, God is passionate for his glory and rightly so because he is God. He is a perfect and holy being. There is none greater than him. He is not like men, declares the prophet Samuel. He is of another another essence. He alone is worthy of praise because he is totally perfect in all his ways. That's why he can demand his glory. And in reality, to fail to do so would actually be to suggest that worship should be directed toward something else, something lesser. We have a name for that. It's called idolatry. Interestingly, though, God's grace in rescuing his people runs parallel with his passion for his glory. How about this inference from Proverbs fourteen twenty eight? In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. What does that suggest about God's desire to rescue the nations? That he will receive glory for it. Paul certainly sees it that way. Look back at the text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the suggestion? God's grace is willing your deliverance, and that comes as a direct result of the person and work of Jesus. And that is both a mechanism for your rescue and for the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. What a satisfying place to be because this historical work reclaims our purpose in this world, the purpose for which God created us. The Westminster Catechism tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Well, if that's true, then trusting in the accomplished work of Jesus brings us A very profound meaning, one which God intended us to have. And the meaning that God created for us is the only meaning that truly matters in the end. See, grace has rescued you from futility. Now, we just established that it is good that God be vested in his own glory, that this is right for God because it means that he's truly God. And now he's rooted his vestment in his glory in your rescue as his child. Church, that's incredible news. Think about that. Maybe you believe that you've sinned too greatly or that you've fallen too far, or maybe you believed once, but you just can't seem to come back to God. Whatever the case, it's not about you, but about God's rescue. What a ridiculous position it would be then to suggest that we could add anything to God's grace. If that were the case, then all would be lost. God's glory would be shared with another. Who has worked to accomplish it with him. See, when we try to earn God's grace, be it before the gospel or after believing, it's an attempt to bring glory to ourselves, whether we realize it or not. But that ultimately condemns us. Because it competes with God's glory. Church, the call back to grace is a call to shed the ways that you're working to earn God's favor. Plead with God to show you the pockets of unbelief and resistance to God's grace in your life. That is what makes it sure. That makes it a certainty. Because if God wills you for salvation and fails to come through, if he puts his name on the line as he did with Abraham and passing through the carcasses and your salvation fails, his glory is lost and God will not risk his own glory. His glory is his central focus. And because his glory is his central focus, the salvation of his people is sure. His eye is continually on it, and we receive the groundwork for bringing glory to God. We're saying the words, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Abraham's life was marked by great enthusiasm for God, but at times Abraham's life was also marked by woeful lows and fearful decline and sin. Nonetheless, after he was given the promise, Genesis says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And because of the accomplished work of Jesus, Hebrews tells us of Abraham, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called his God. May that be the mark of our life because we have trusted the grace of God in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glory. Your glory, which is the security of our salvation, that you have rooted in our salvation in your own name. Thank you for who you are and what you have promised in that. Father, would you draw us to cling to your grace more and more? In Jesus' name, amen.